1: Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Let's talk LSU Alabama. Saturday night's game, I found it very entertaining despite the fact that it was 0-0 going into the fourth quarter. Uh, you know, some people are comparing it to the the game five years ago, the nine to six game. Now I remember a lot of a lot of complaining about the nine to six game. I didn't hear that so much now. I wonder if five years later. Uh, with all the bad defense that we see in college football, the people are a little more appreciative when we do see that rare defensive showdown.
2: Yeah. You know, for me, I, obviously there's all kinds of things that make up great college football. I mean, earlier in the day, we had that Navy Notre Dame game, which was very different from any AM, you know, any uh, usually game you see in Texas right now, which is kind of a shootout. And that was a different style. And I thought, To me, people can go, well, was it bad offense or really good defense? I think it's a lot more of really good defense. That's not to say Danny Etling didn't miss a few throws. He definitely should have made. They looked like they were relatively easy throws. Easy for me to say it. I wasn't the one being pressured. But, um, you know, when you look at it, what stood out to me, Stu, was that you watch any game on Saturday where there's like over 1,000 yards of total offense, and you'll see all these missed tackles. You just didn't see a lot of missed tackles at all, especially for the first three quarters. And, you know, it's not like there weren't good, really good dynamic skill guys out there. Lennon Fournette is as talented as any running back in the country. Alabama's got a lot of firepower. And there just weren't a lot of big plays to be had.
1: So oftentimes when you have a game like this, people are, you know, especially outside the SEC, was it good defense or was it bad offense? Well, in this case, I, I think we know the answer because for two reasons. Alabama's offense has been very good all season. So the fact that it took them till the fourth quarter to score, that Jalen Hurts made some mistakes that he hadn't been making during the season, I think. I thought LSU's defense was phenomenal. And in terms of the other side, you know, this showed that. Yes, this showed that LSU is still very one dimensional. But at the end of the day, every every other team Leonard Fournette plays, he has a lot of success. He's you know, regardless of the quarterback, regardless of their offensive line. He manages to get his, I believe, coming into the game almost eight yards of carry, and for the second straight year, he was held below forty yards rushing. Unbelievable! Yes, yeah, dude.
2: There was a couple of plays in there. There was one in particular where Fournette looks like he's about to break out and go for about a seventy-five yard touchdown run. And one of the Alabama linebackers dives and catches his leg and, and knocks him down for, I think, it maybe a five or six-yard gain. I mean, there were plays like that where anybody else, I think that's at least a 40, 50-yard gain, maybe a touchdown. You know, in that game, it's not. There's just constant pressure. Um, and I think that was what makes it different. And for the people who kind of roll their eyes at it, I mean – USC has a lot of firepower. Now I know it's, it wasn't Sam Darnold who was starting, but they beat USC by like fifty points. I mean, that's not to say that Alabama is going to beat everybody by fifty points, but um, or 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 could. But I just think that for people who are just going, oh, you know, this is just bad, typical bad SEC football, no good quarterback play. You know, yeah, there have been there are definitely better quarterbacks out there than Danny Etling, but you look at the caliber athletes that are involved in that game there's not a lot of teams that are gonna that are gonna hit some so many big plays consistently maybe they'll hit one or two here or there but they're not gonna make a living
1: off it to be clear i don't think many people are are coming away from this less impressed with alabama the defense you know i do believe now and i've heard people say it i heard your your old colleague houston nutt say it on the radio sunday that yes This is Nick Saban's best defense. And that's saying something because the 2011 defense that played LSU twice allowed less than nine points per game over the course of the entire season, which is insane. But of course, a lot has changed in five years. They're facing a lot more up-tempo offenses than they were then. Uh, They're not going to have statistics like that necessarily, but... You know, because of that shutout, they're now right behind Michigan, number two in scoring defense and in total defense, number one uh, above Michigan. And, you know, you asked the question on our Facebook live show Saturday night. I didn't necessarily have an answer ready made then. And maybe you do. But the question you asked Kristen and I, who out there would you give the best shot to beat Alabama? Yeah, for me, I would stick with the one that I saw last
2: year that had Alabama on the ropes and that would be Clemson. Deshaun Watson's still there. I know he's maybe had some shakier moments this year so far, but Wayne Gallman's still there. Uh, that's a good one-two punch. It's not just a dynamic dual-threat quarterback who can run, but it's also a physical running back. They got good receivers on the outside, and I think he responds well to the, to the big stage and the pressure. We've seen him already do that. You know, there's a lot of guys I'm not sure about that. Now, look, let's—I'll say this: Ole Miss was able to beat uh, Alabama two years in a row because they really are, were not scared of Alabama at all, and especially on offense. And Chad Kelly certainly wasn't. Now, this year they couldn't do it, but you know, when you look, I think it takes not just a quarterback who's who's talented and, and can extend plays, but I think it takes somebody who's not going to be scared. Uh, you know, I thought LSU's defense played terrific. But I think on offense, they were, they were afraid, I think, at times that you're going to have a mistake that gets compounded, kind of like what happened with Texas A&M. One minute Texas A&M's le- leading in the third quarter, the next minute they make a bad you know, personal foul penalty to extend a drive, and then it's like a fumble score happens on defense, and now all of a sudden the game's over. And I think that's something that's in the back of a lot of teams' heads. It might not even be in the back of their heads. you know. And, and I felt like LSU – you know, as soon as it became, oh man, we don't have a lead, we're not tied. You know, it's just they start pressing even more. So who are the, you know, who's the quarterback that you have that much confidence in? Who can, handle, who you think could handle
0: it?
1: Yeah, I wrote about it on Monday morning, and certainly Clemson is one of the teams you'd have on that short list. Their turnover problems, though, this year concern me. Um, I think the team that is best suited to do it, but I probably wouldn't have said this before past this past Saturday, is Ohio State. Because, frankly, they're the only team out there that recruits at the same level as Alabama. And they've got the dynamic you know, quarterback who can run, which you know you need to beat them. And, of course, you've got an elite coach. Now, their offense had been, I would say, underachieving for a good month or so of the season. And it really broke out the other night against the Nebraska team that, yes, that Nebraska team was overrated. But I don't think they were that overrated that you would expect them to lose 62-3. to three. Um, I want to get your thoughts on that, but I also want to get your thought. Cause of course I put that out there Monday morning and you can imagine which fan base was most, um, snarky about it. Yeah, of course. The, probably the Wolverines. Let me guess. Yeah. your thoughts, it, it, who would have a better shot against Alabama, Ohio state or Michigan?
2: I would lean towards Ohio state just because, you know, I'm not, I think JT Barrett's a good quarterback. I don't think JT Barrett is a, is a great college quarterback. You know, I think Deshaun Watson is better than him. But because he's more mobile, they do more in the run game. I think that it's more of a challenge for the Alabama defense. You know, I still need to see a lot more from Spate at this point at quarterback. I do think they have really good receivers and a really good tight end. And I think that could be a problem for Alabama. But when I look, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, I, I Ohio State's a fast team. You know, LSU has a lot of speed, too, though. And they, you know, they kind of short-circuited that. Um, here's a team that we haven't talked about, and I'm curious what you think. The quarterback is not very mobile. He moves okay. But when you look at Washington and the speed they have, they have a, I think they have a really good quarterback in Jake Browning. They are good at all three levels of the defense. They can get pressure without needing to blitz. And we know Chris Peterson is a great big game coach. He keeps showing it. Did you give Washington some consideration?
1: So, first of all, real quick about Wilton Spade. He's having a great season. A great season. Uh, there's not even, it's night and day. You know, Nobody would put him in the same breath as Danny Etling, but he doesn't run. And so that was my point about Michigan is, I think you can't out Alabama, Alabama. Jim Harbaugh's team is a, is a run first, power running team. Yes, their offense is more imaginative, I would say, than, uh, more versatile than LSU's, but I just, I can't see a team with a traditional dropback quarterback being the team that handles that Alabama defense. Now, granted, Michigan has a great defense of their own, but I don't know that they would, that would be enough. So anyway, to your question about Jake Browning and Washington, you know, he's having a phenomenal season. He's having, frankly, a Marcus Mariota's kind of season in terms of the ridiculous touchdown to interception ratio of 34 to three. I love Washington. I love watching Washington. I think they're a very well-coached team. The the problem I have, and I said this in the column, is is not anything specific to their team. It's how do you know? I mean, it's been so long since Washington has been on this stage, and even in the course of this season, they have yet to play, um, you know, a game like we we thought it was at the time against Stanford. It was not the game that Clemson had against. Louisville, the game that Ohio State and Michigan are going to have against each other, they're just not going to have that kind of game against a elite opponent during the season. So, how do we know how they would measure up on that stage? I don't have the foggiest idea.
2: Well, I mean, that's the same thing on you know you can say that about Washington. I mean, I think at that point, couldn't you say that about a lot of you know he said about a lot on that big stage? I mean, still, I agree with you about Wilton Spade. I think he's really been impressive, and I think Harbaugh and uh, Jed Fish have done a really good job with him. If they handle their business in Columbus and do it, then I'll probably think differently. I'm not, I'm picking them to win the game, but I still you know want to see it
1: before. I think Alabama is just a, a test on a whole nother level. So let's talk about Ohio State and Michigan for a second. I feel like that game is starting to come up on people's minds, uh, especially after what Ohio State did the other night. Well first of all, give me a percentage chance before we even get to that. Give me a percentage chance that Michigan is finally going on the road and playing a team with a pulse this week at Iowa. Saturday night prime time. What chance do you give the Hawkeyes?
2: What chance does Iowa have to knock them off?
1: To knock them off in Iowa City Saturday night, Michigan. Uh, I would say seven percent. Seven percent. Iowa is not playing well. There's no question about it. But don't you think this has like the the makings of a trap, much like Mississippi State against a And think Michigan is. Now here. that's a bad comparison because a- Michigan has been dominant to this point. A And M was not. Uh, anyway, I would give Iowa a twenty percent chance. You give them twenty percent. I would have said
2: higher if it wasn't just the case where Penn State just just lit up Iowa.
1: They did, but that was in state college. This will be in Iowa uh, at night. I don't know. This is a team with much better defensive personnel than the one that just that just handled Iowa. Right. All right. Let's fast forward to the game in Columbus because even though we're both saying Ohio State is probably better suited from a you know the way they're built to take on an Alabama. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're better or or that they're going to beat Michigan in Columbus. And I think for me it comes down to, is Ohio State's offense going to continue to get better? They don't need to score 62 again like they did against Nebraska. But is that performance they had against Nebraska, was that the sign of the breakout that we've been waiting to see? Or will that prove to be an aberration against a Nebraska team that was playing its second straight road game and... Hadn't you know been tested against? Well, they played a pretty good Wisconsin team the week before, but you know what I'm saying. Do, do we do we see Ohio State going forward? Curtis Samuel having games like that, JT Bear having games like that, or is it going to look more like the previous four weeks? Because they're not going to beat Michigan with the offense that went to Penn State. Uh, frankly, the offense against Northwestern the week before.
2: Yeah, well, I don't think they're going to beat Michigan. So, and I'm not saying they're going to they're going to be quite as stagnant. But I don't think it's going to look like. And I said this for a couple of weeks. Sorry, Nebraska. but I, Even though AM and M is all obviously lost, I thought Nebraska was the most undeserving to be in the top ten uh, on what they had done on their resume. And I think they were exposed by the Buckeyes. And um, Ohio State's really talented, but I think you're going to because they're so young. I keep coming back to this. I think there's going to be a, there's going to be a lot of good, and there's going to be some shaky. And I right. I still think we're going to see some shaky. I don't think all of a sudden now it's going to be 2014 again and they're just going to keep rolling. I think they'll, they'll probably be better than they were a month ago, but I, I still could see a hiccup here and there.
1: I think this defense is actually better than the 2014 one. I mean, the, the they just set the school record for pick sixes. You know, everybody in that secondary, Malik Hooker, uh, Conley, Lattimore, Damon Webb had a pick six in that other game. They're all big time playmakers. But offensively, obviously, they're not rolling over people. They haven't been rolling over people every week like that 2014 team was. I just wanted to mention, though, about that game. If you were watching that on TV, really frightening moment with Tommy Armstrong. And I'm just relieved you know, that it's come out that he has a concussion. And not that I want him to have a concussion by any means, but with that scene where he was immobilized and the family was being brought down from the stands and... Sam Ponder was reporting about for ESPN. She was clearly shaken up about it. You know, it was a scary moment where it looked like it might be, you know, one of these nightmare uh, injuries.
2: Yeah, it's, it's you know, I flipped back on the game when he was down. And it's just kind of really daunting when you can see the ambulance on the edge of the field just waiting.
1: Right. And then ESPN showed the aerial shot of the ambulance leaving the stadium. It, it was, uh, you know, they said he was unconscious at one point. It was, it was scary. And I don't think that... His injury is the reason they lost the game, as lopsided as they did. You know, I, it was Ohio State was well on its way at that point, but I'm sure. How do you go back out and play? And I've always wondered that about a game where you, you just saw your teammate get carried off on a stretcher and put in an ambulance. You know how you then just turn around the next minute, the next play, and play full speed football. Yeah, I mean, look, it's I hate to
2: say it, but you know, a lot of guys get numb to seeing, especially when it's, you know, teammates and guys they're close to or best friends and happens, Um, you know, no matter what age you are, I mean, it it takes a special kind of focus to be able to just kind of, you know, move on. You see it all the time where guys get either carried off the field, occasionally carted off the field. And it's just, even we as fans, I almost said we get numb to it because I did think it was a very cool gesture how the Ohio State fans, you know, were chanting his name and everything, and I thought that well, clearly that resonated with him as well. Um, and so, you know, I, it's unfortunate. It's a it's a violent game, and sometimes that you know things like this do happen.
1: I want to turn our attention to the Big Twelve and a couple interesting stories from Saturday. One, you were there for in person uh, the Texas Texas Tech game. You were on the sideline and. Even though this is a game between teams that are, you know, not remotely playoff contenders, it was an interesting game for several reasons. One, you had one of the crazier plays you'll ever see, where Deontay Foreman was stopped, like basically inches from the goal line, fumble, Texas Tech, hundred yards, and the other way. Red
2: Raiders, you know, inside the ten on his back, what looks right. like a apparent touchdown, and then I don't, know, I don't remember if it was Malik Jenkins, that's who he was the Tech player who came off the field sounding like he was the one who stripped it. And then, because that's kind of near where I was, and then it goes the other way. I'll be honest, too, because I'm down near the goal line. I have no idea that he has, whether the Texas Tech players a 100 yards or stepped out of bounds, because that's just not the vantage point I had. And everybody in the stadium felt like they were focusing in on whether whether Foreman scored, not
1: whether the Texas Tech player right. scored. Yeah, it's almost like the replay officials didn't even think to look at that part of it, because it did seem, for, for people who sent the screenshots around, that he stepped out of the two. Regardless, you know Texas ended up winning the game, and Foreman ended up having th- running for 341 yards. He is now the nation's leading rusher. He has rushed for at least 100 in every game. That, by the way, came after 250 the week before. Uh, you, were, you were a little bit ahead of the curve. You put him in your Heisman top five last about week. It's about time I've been ahead of the curve on something. So. Indeed. You had him in the top five last week.
2: Got a lot of grief from my colleagues Matt Leiner and Joel Klatt, by the way.
1: Why? Why would you get grief over putting a guy who has had that strong a season? I mean, the only reason he's not getting more Heisman buzz is that his team has four losses. And, you know, I, I think it shouldn't matter. You know, if you're if you're having an outstanding season... Regardless of your team's record, you deserve to be in the mix. But I know in reality that's not how usually it it plays out. In fact, I'm interested to see, you know, we both have him in our top five now. I'm interested to see, as some of the other uh, media organizations' polls come out this week, whether he is moving in there or whether his team's record is holding him back. And or, let's be honest, he is not the first player to benefit from playing against Texas Tech's defense.
2: No, but I mean, what he's done, I mean, he's been well over 100 yards in every game this year. The only the, His lowest output rushing this year is like 122 yards, and that was against K-State, who, by the way, has a top 12 run defense in the country. So I, I think productivity-wise has been pretty awesome what he's done, even more than that. So I usually talk to, you know, some players and certainly coaches before the games I do. And I had talked to Foreman on two, last Tuesday night. And one of the questions I asked him was, so what are your goals? You guys are four and four. So what are your goals for the rest of the season? The very first thing he talked about with me was he want, he was determined to try and save Charlie Strong's job. And so you have this guy who's not part of, you know – we can talk all we want about freshmen and sophomores and how young this team is. But when you have a guy who was, you know, he was a former two-star recruit. He and his brother, his twin brother, Imani were originally committed to to the Mac Brown staff. And Deontay told me, to be honest, I really thought they, they didn't really want me. I just thought they wanted my brother. When Mac is out, they, you know, kind of think about reopening their recruitment and decide, Hey, we're going to take an official visit. And then he said, you know, we just kind of connected with Charlie strong and we felt this is a place we need to be. And so what I think has been fascinating for me to see is we've talked so much about whether Charlie strong is going to survive this season and be the head coach at Texas. And to see how these players, not just the young players, but how all these players have bought in and are committed to him, I think is very interesting to see what's going to happen there. Cause this was their first road win when they won at it. You can say what you want about how bad Red Raiders' defense is. Their offense is legit. Pat Mahomes can play. And they did a decent job, relatively speaking, of slowing them down. And since Charlie Strong has taken over the defense, and I looked this up, their last four opponents are averaging 10 points under their season average. And
1: that's, that's a testament to this young defense starting to come of age. So what do you think? I feel like we've been debating this topic for two years. Is he going to end up saving his job? You know what? I really
2: think it's going to come down to this weekend. If they can get another win against West Virginia, who's very good, and they win this game, then it's three in a row. They go on the road for their last road trip, and it's to Kansas who stinks. I don't see them losing that. And then they get TCU at the end of the year in Austin. And granted, TCU just just thumped Baylor by 40 on the road, but... You know, I think what Charlie Strong cannot afford here is there's a feeling of there's some real positive momentum that he's kind of picked up speed down the stretch. You know, we're seeing some of these high profile recruits now. Malik Jefferson last couple of weeks has come to life and playing the best football he's played. So he cannot afford two steps forward, one big step back, because if I think that happens, then I think there's going to there would be a lot more panic of people going, you know what? This isn't happening fast enough. If he goes out and wins, and then all of a sudden he wins, you know, five in a row to close the year, and they know how good and young this team is, I think they're going to have to keep him. which some people there, and I'm talking about people on the, in the program, but I think some of those boosters have probably made up their mind. They didn't want Charlie Strong, but I think that the results may dictate otherwise.
1: You disagree? Bruce, it sounds like somebody like your kitchen is about to implode. Like, what is going on back there? There is construction
2: going on, Stu. They're doing roof work in our development, so I apologize
1: for what sounds like uh, we're being under attack. It does. It sounds like the construction is going on inside your house, but uh, I guess we'll we'll trudge on, we'll persevere. I think that you're right. I think if he can win the reigning games, he's going to save his job, but there are two. I think they're going to be pretty hard, starting with this one against West Virginia. It's a good thing it's in Austin and not in Morgantown. Uh, you know, this is going to be a much tougher defense than the one they faced last week. And then, you know, after what TCU did to Baylor, finally looking like the team I thought they might coming into the season, that Friday Thanksgiving weekend game in Austin is no longer a gimme. So, you know, I think if he does pull it off, it will have been a a remarkable run at the end of the season, given where they were a month ago. Now, speaking of that TCU-Baylor game, what a clusterfuck. There's no other way to describe it. What's going on with Baylor football right now? Uh, Wait, did you, just, did you just cuss? I did. Wow, you, You've inspired me. Somebody asked recently, what's the threshold before they start putting that explicit label on iTunes? And I, I don't have the foggiest idea. I don't even know who decides that. Is there somebody in Apple headquarters that listens to all the podcasts and decides whether or not they're explicit or not? I don't know. I like the idea,
2: Stu. You are starting to work blue. It is very cool. How low will you go, by the way? What do you
1: mean? Like, you know, like, how low will you go with some of your profanity? How blue will it get? How low? Yeah. We'll have to, I guess we'll have to find out. All right. Tune in next week. Stu is going to drop the C word. I know. We're not going there. I don't, I don't plan these things. I assume you don't either. We get a lot of feedback about it. Frankly, your cussing seems to be one of the most popular features of this podcast. So, you know, it dawned on me the
2: other day because obviously I'm comfortable on this. I'd say that I'm not comfortable when I do radio, but I, I, Andy Staples asked me to do his serious show Sunday. And, um,
1: I, please tell me you didn't curse on there.
2: No, I don't think I did. But I would, you know, I'd been delayed on a plane and everything like three hours, and I'm pretty exhausted. And I'm very comfortable at that point. I'm kind of like trying to multitask a little bit and, i'm like it it dawned on me i was like just remember where you're at because like this is way more loose or whatever i think on on the joel clap breaking the huddle show i mean i don't know i don't know how dr pepper would feel about it but i feel like (laughs) you could kind of maybe straddle that fence there
1: um I, i want you to go on the show and say f larry culpepper see how that goes yeah i know my audience here or whatever but um I'm glad to see you are you are feeling very comfortable. So let your proverbial hair down. Well, frankly, the Baylor situation is so infuriating sometimes. How can you not let out a few expletives? And when those pictures surfaced on Twitter Saturday of the fans lined up to buy those black hashtag CAB t-shirts, including the smiling woman selling them, I was ticked. I was genuinely ticked. I am trying to keep saying this. I know people don't believe it that that is not representative of all Baylor fans that like any fan base you've got a vocal minority oh also by the way there was a CAB banner flying from one of the suites in the stadium the people that are doing this what do they think they're accomplishing other than making their entire fan base look like completely insensitive to rape victims completely clueless if they think this is going to help bring Arp Riles back and most of all I just think this has been so uh, I'm not saying it's the reason they lost by 40. But when your assistant coaches are tweeting out defending Art Bryles the night before the game, uh, and then people are doing this the day of the game, Baylor wore black uniforms, everybody there. I, I talked to people, they swear that was decided months ago, that the seniors decide the uniform combos, and they were going to save them up for their big rivalry game against TCU. But one guy uses a hashtag in a tweet, and everybody assumes that they're doing some sort of protest of Art Bryle's firing, which, by the way, college football players move on pretty quickly. If you think they're sitting around in November stewing about Art Bryle's firing, I don't think you know college football players very well. Anyway, oh, also Shock Linwood got into an altercation with an assistant on the sideline. Um, do you now believe me that this season is not going to end well for Baylor?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I don't think they're going to lose quite as many games as you've been saying. But let me ask you this, and I, I don't want I don't, I to use even the term devil's advocate, but do you think there is a way for Baylor, some of these Baylor supporters, whether they're Art Briles' family members who are on staff or the other staff members who've been, you know, his O-line coach had been with Art Briles since they were high school coaches together. Do you think there is a capacity for them to show support of Art Briles' without appearing to be insensitive to rape victims and and, and victims of sexual assault.
1: It's tough because any, especially now that they put out the thing where they took issue with the Regents characterization of how he handled uh, finding out a few years ago about some allegations against his players, it's tough. Uh, I, you know, Brenda Tracy, who has become a very uh, prominent spokesperson. She was uh, the woman who, in 1998, raped by several Oregon State football players, and and many many years later has kind of become a public figure and speaks to schools about this. And, and one of the schools she went to was Baylor in the off season. and she was for the most part felt pretty positive about that experience. She has now done a 180. She said she came out on Sunday and said they should cancel the rest of their season. Uh, because everybody there seems to be so insensitive still to the survivors, and uh, I don't know. I, to, to answer your question, how would they do that? I don't know. And if anything, I don't know. Maybe they're still operating under what I think is a completely misguided belief that somebody's going to snap him up this coming year, and that they're all going to get back together and, and do this all over again somewhere else. I actually would bet that they are. You think they're operating under the assumption that Art Riley will be a college head coach next year? I do. I'm not saying it's it's an accurate one, but I I think that they are thinking that way. Well, that is a heck of a bubble to be living in, and given the fact that's not going to happen, I think these guys are damaging their chances of getting a job anywhere next year. Uh, do you remember when Penn State happened? Tom Bradley, who is a you know a very respected defensive coordinator, was Joe Paterno's defensive coordinator for years. He was out of coaching for two or three years before UCLA hired him. Just complete guilt by association. And he wasn't tweeting out protests and things like that. I don't remember him saying anything really about the whole either. Now, I actually remember, uh, I worked at CBS at the time. I want to
2: say Tom was being looked at for a job on air with CBS the first year. And I don't think that happened. I'm not sure if it was because they weren't sure how that was going to play out or whatever. But there was, he was in limbo for a while. I mean, is it revisionist history for me to think back and go the assistant? I'm not talking Mike McQuarrie and certainly Jay Paterno who's on staff. I don't know how it's hard to separate. I mean, Jay, Jay Paterno's dad, you know, obviously in the mix. But I feel like the Baylor staff, because this involves a lot of players, they were around is more tied to this
1: story than the Penn State staff was um and maybe i'm wrong for thinking that no i think you're right i was talking to somebody about this last night the word i would use is defiant this staff isn't just associated with a scandal they're in the wake of that scandal being defiant and and most notably jim grobe interim head coach says on saturday he had no prior warning that they were going to send out that mass tweet on friday now in any other situation if the assistant coaches go around the head coach's back like that there's going to be major ramifications but Baylor is just kind of stuck like this so I'm going to throw a question to you you're not expecting okay yes maybe Baylor turns things around here and finishes nine and three ten and two nine and three something to that effect but if that if this season goes south completely from here and let's say they only win one more game the rest of the year what are the chances they would turn down a bowl invite I wouldn't be shocked if they
2: did that I mean I think that's a that's a Mac Rhodes who's the new AD I think that's You know, one
1: of the things that probably will be discussed. Because the reason I bring it up is, given what everything we just talked about with their staff, and clearly Jim Grobe's not coming back, let's say they get picked for a bowl that's not played till December 30th. You're going to have to keep that staff together for another month. Yeah, I mean, that's a very awkward dynamic. I mean, ultimately,
2: you know, you go to a bowl game, it's supposed to be a reward for the program and certainly for the players. I mean, if they take a vote amongst the players... And the players say they want to play. Which I would guess they would say that. Is there an obligation to those players to play then?
1: Quite possibly. You know, I mean, it is for them. And they've been through quite the rough ride this season. and It is for them. You're right. Uh, And maybe they don't have a choice. Maybe Grove and those coaches keep at it for another month. After Mac Rhodes has probably already hired somebody else. That happens a lot, obviously. These interim staffs coach the bowl game while a new staff is getting started. But in this case, you're talking about I mean, a lot of people think these guys shouldn't have been allowed to stay there in the first place. So, um, I don't know, it's just something to keep on the radar. It's too, probably too early for that to become a viable possibility, but um, something to think about. Uh, real quick, um, we haven't even discussed Texas A&M, the number four team in the committee poll, losing on Saturday. And, and frankly, you know, that one seemingly came out of nowhere. Uh, at Mississippi State, yes, that's a tough place to play. Those cowbells are allowed. But I think I heard Kevin someone say this, and it's true. The main area that had been such a problem for them for so long that they finally thought they'd have fixed was their run defense. And for whatever reason in this game, they could not tackle Mississippi State. Yeah.
2: It felt like a, kind of what you saw from Texas A&M the past few
1: years. Right. Where they kind of looked really, really lost. Between that and, uh, you know, obviously Florida lost at Arkansas. Uh, LSU suffered its third loss. If we think Alabama is going to the playoff, a second SEC team is going to play in the Sugar Bowl. If you had to guess right now, who would it be? You know, LSU or Auburn. So no chance to a and I don't think so. Well, let me just uh, play devil's advocate here for a second because I agreed with you until I looked at their schedule. Ole Miss this Saturday at home. Ole Miss just lost Chad Kelly to a torn ACL, a really devastating injury. Then UTSA, and then on Thanksgiving – LSU, who will be coming off a, a Saturday game against Florida. I still think it's kind of, I would say, likely that AM is going to finish 10-2. It's possible. I mean, look, the, to me, the challenging there, one, is LSU
2: coming in there at the end of the year. What could be a fascinating subplot, and maybe there's only like eight people who, who would get this, but the idea that Ed Ogeron's job at LSU could be determined by facing his old nemesis and former colleague, Noel Mazzoni's offense in a season finale, because that's what happened with USC and UCLA three years ago.
1: Okay, that wasn't where I thought you were going. Uh, I thought you were going with you know Chavis against LSU. Is that true? Do you consider Ogeron and and Mazzoni to be nemesis? I would say nemesis. I know they're not buddies. I know
2: that it was a very tough, tough uh, working relationship at the end. I mean, Ogeron has said as much. He didn't, you know, he was very tough on Noel. He didn't, he wanted Noel to run the offense that Noel really didn't want to run at the end. And look, I was around, I wasn't around the year, you know, he coached there three years. I was around the last two. I was not really around. I was there briefly. And I think I went down in the spring his when he first got there, but, so I don't know, you know, exactly the dynamic, what it was like then. I do know that, you know, he could be a very tough guy to work for, exceptionally tough when he was at Ole Miss and you know I, I know that there was there was a little bit of an awkward situation there no question.
1: So maybe I'm thinking about this stuff more now because I do the bowl projections and I'm thinking far beyond the playoff so questions like which SEC team goes to the Sugar Bowl are on my mind and to that point if we think Washington's going to the playoff which Pac-12 team Colorado, Washington State, or Utah is going to be in the Rose Bowl. If you watch the Colorado-UCLA game the other night, Colorado's got a great defense, but uh, that was an ugly, ugly game. And in fact, they scored, I believe, what, 10 of their 20 points on special teams? Or no, they had one punt return touchdown, then another long return, set up another score. Um, so that that's believable. But then... Rank me right now your top three teams in the Pac-12. Washington 1, Washington State 2, Colorado 3. Come on, Stu. Come over to where I think you're going to go. Oh, you know what? Uh, Let me. Sorry. USC three. Who was who was two? Washington one. Washington State two. USC three. Who was three? USC.
2: That's right. Okay, so we are. You know what? Even though I have Utah on Thursday night at ASU, I think the way Sam Darnold has played and the and. he's given them also when you talk to coaches in the league and i've you know done enough pac 12 games they said usc is the most physical team in the conference it's been felt like it, it hasn't been that way for a little while but now it is um they're not great up front on defense
1: but i think they're right now the third best team in, in the conference they're a much different team than they were at the beginning of the season it's absolutely ridiculous as they're not in the polls this week i think they'll be in the committee rankings but you know, three lost Florida States in there, you know, come on. I'm taking USC right now. Uh, so that makes for a very interesting game in Seattle this weekend. I think Washington wins, and a big reason why is that's such a huge home field advantage they have there, and the place will be rocking. Game day is going to be there. And, and frankly, Washington hasn't shown us anything to this point to think they would lose to USC. And so the problem then is, you know, in terms of that bowl conversation we were just having, even if you think, if you're doing a Pac-12 power ranking, even if you think they're one of the three, two or three best teams, they're going to, if they lose this game, they're going to have four losses already. Agree. I mean, that's that's a very interesting situation
2: that I think, not a lot of people outside of, you know, this time zone or even, it's even on their
1: radar. Frankly, the polls this week told me that just nobody's watching Pac-12 football. (laughs) It's, uh... It's it's you know not surprising to me in that and we talked about this I believe last week that when your brand name programs are down uh, then people pay even less attention to the Pac-12 than they already do. But SC is one of their brand name programs. SC is playing better. I think everybody just you know forgot about them after the one and three start. And I I guess I can't say I entirely blame them, but you know they've been playing on TV. They've been playing. Oh, you know, they had a Thursday night game that everybody could have watched. Uh, But, you know, they're missing out. Sam Darnold's a really good player, and we'll see what happens down the stretch. But, yeah, there's a very interesting subplot there with, well, I mean, first of all, okay, you just said you think Washington State's going to win at Colorado. Do you think they can beat Washington at home in the Apple Cup? Because if they do, Washington might go from projected playoff team to not winning its division. Um. They can beat them. I don't think they
2: will because I don't think right now, I, I think Washington is a bad matchup for them. The, the biggest reason for that, I think, now they didn't play face Luke Falk last year. They had uh, Peyton Bender was the back. He's not even at Wazoo anymore. But I think Washington, the way they're built is, and their D-line I think could get healthier by that time, could. Um, I think they can get pressure on Luke Falk without having to blitz. Now, if you're a team that has to blitz them, good luck. He's smart, and they'll get the ball out quick. But one of these teams that can sit there and drop seven, drop eight, it gives Wazoo problems. Now, that's not to say that they couldn't be a problem, but also one of the stories, and I don't think a lot of people are following outside of the Washington area, is Washington State is without their best interior lineman. Robert Barber, he got expelled. Uh, They obviously were able to handle it the last couple of weeks but I think against a team that really runs the ball very well, like Washington does, I think they would miss him. And I, I mean, I know there's been appeals and all this talk about him maybe coming back. I mean, I I, I don't know anything personally about whether he's going to come
1: back or not. I, My hunch is he probably won't. I kind of chuckle that you saying I don't think many people... I don't think many people outside of the state of Washington could name two Washington State players. Nobody's watching Washington State, which is a shame. It's an exciting team. And maybe they know Luke Falk, but... Uh, sometimes it, Pullman is like, I mean, you, you play college football in Pullman or Corvallis. You're just so far removed. You know, who's in i I'm trying to think who's an equivalent team. Um, Arkansas. People no, have probably see Arkansas close. play much more this year than Washington State.
2: There really isn't any comparison to, to what you have there just because they are on. First of all, when you're in the Pac-12, you have the chance to be on an island. I mean, look, Kyle Whittingham's won a ton of games. And I don't think most people in the uh, SEC footprint would recognize them if you
1: walked into their business. Right. All right. We'll get back to the podcast in a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsors today. The first one is Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, in fact, proudly supports the Audible. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. Fast, powerful, and completely online. Rocket Mortgage has taken all the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. Hate searching through stacks of old files and paperwork? With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. Even better, with Rocket Mortgage, you can do all of this on your phone or tablet. It's a quick online process that you can manage from the convenience of your couch. So if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, Check out Rocket Mortgage today at QuickenLoans.com Audible. We're also brought to you by Identity Guard. And uh, if you've been listening to the podcast, you've heard me ask this question before, which is, have you ever lost or thought you lost your phone? And how awful was that? Even if you found it in five minutes. If you're like me, your life is on that phone. Well, guess what? Identity thieves know that too. And when your lost phone winds up in the hands of an identity thief, it can be the beginning of a disaster financially emotionally even physically that could take years to unwind that's why you can help protect yourself with identity guard with identity guard you get a protection from a company that's been in the business for over 20 years one that's helped protect more than 47 million people identity guard continuously monitors millions of transactions and articles and sends you the news tools and guidance you need to minimize your risk plus if you were to become a victim of identity theft Identity Guard's victim recovery specialists will be there to help you through the recovery process. Identity Guard even offers identity theft insurance with coverage of up to one million dollars. So get the identity theft protection service that's right for you. Visit Identity Guard at identityguard.com/podcast. That's identityguard.com/podcast. Uh, you've got a busy, busy week this week. You are going to be sideline reporter for two games. Including Utah at ASU on Thursday night, so you're not going to be able to do the second podcast this week. And we love to get to the mailbag every week. All right, here we go. Mailbag, Rob.
0: It's the mailbag from a computer, so not literally a bag, but just mail. Mailbag.
1: Okay, um, we've got a reader. He keeps emailing. He really wants us to talk about UCLA. So like Zach Zimmerman from New York City. Hey, Bruce and Stu. As a UCLA fan, I'm conflicted about Jim Mora. On one hand, he re-energized a very sleepy program, but on the other hand, his teams have woefully underperformed. Since 2012, UCLA's average recruiting class, according to Scout, is 10th nationally. The average recruiting class for four of the teams they beat this year is 47th. How is losing to teams with far inferior talent anything but bad coaching? And should he be on the hot seat? No, I don't think Jim Mora should be on the hot seat. I mean, he...
2: Gave them a big jolt. I think he brought some of the toughness that they needed. Um, They were really banged up last year. I know that's not an excuse. I mean, he beat USC his first three years in a row. I mean, I I give him a pass. I feel like I would give almost any coach who who has won as much as he did. He won 29 games the first three years. Um, Last year wasn't a great year, but they were really injured. Um, You know, if he goes four and eight this year, he would be on the hot seat in 2017, no question. I mean, right now, I when I look at what they've done offensively, it made, you know, on one sense it sounded great to go to Kennedy Polamalu and more of a pro-style attack and more nine-on-seven drills at practice because that would toughen you up on both sides of the
1: ball. But I don't think their personnel has fit it very well. I think that decision has completely backfired. I mean, they are the worst rushing team in the country, lower than Kansas, lower than— Any group of five team, the worst rushing team in the country. Our colleague, Robert Smith, I thought had some interesting points on that. And, you know, Robert was a great running
2: back at Ohio State and in the NFL. And he was like, a lot of times you see running, you know, the running stats down immediately. People assume it's got to be the O-line. And I'm not saying the O-line's been great, but he was like, you know, these guys got to get more aggressive. And he's, you know, he sees it in a way that almost no one else is going to see it. And I think sometimes that is a bigger issue. People are like, when I think I quoted what Robert said on at our halftime of that CU game, somebody's like, Well, Soso Jamabo was a five star running back recruit. So what? You know, because he was a great hyped recruit doesn't mean he's a great running back or developed into a great
1: True, recruit. but I thought he got he was better last year. He was decent last year. So I was surprised that that he hasn't been more productive, but I will say this. I agree. I don't think he's on the hot seat, and also that Colorado game was really embarrassing. Uh, On a Thursday night game on national television, when you commit three personal foul penalties in a row to help the other team, you know, drive down the field, and in a game that was close, that's just embarrassing, and you just shows you don't have control of the team. We're doing speed round here. Uh, Joe from Greenville, South Carolina, Stuart and Bruce, longtime listener, first-time mailbag writer, thank you. He mentions that I've previously said that there's no chance for undefeated Power 5 champs. But, you know, those four looked really good this past weekend. So after viewing the Saturday's blowouts, how many of those four teams do you still believe will finish 13-0? and um, I think it'll be two. My gut says it's not going to be three undefeated teams. That's extremely rare. But I don't see Alabama losing. I don't see Clemson losing uh, maybe clemson could lose in the acc title game to virginia tech maybe uh, or, or unc i think washington has the biggest chance of losing washington could lose down the stretch no question about that washington could lose to usc i don't think they will but they could they could lose that they could certainly lose the apple cup i think a washington colorado pac-12 championship game would be fascinating i think i assume washington would win but that colorado defense man it does not get enough credit it is good uh, Brian Smith from Rock Hill, South Carolina. Dude, you know who's from Rock Hill,
2: South Carolina? Uh, Hootie? I have no idea where he's from. Jadavian Clowney is from there.
0: That's right. Uh, as right. well as,
2: I think, our buddy Chris Lowe. Um, anyway, uh, hey guys, when coaches get fired or retire, there is usually a grace period of rebuilding given to the next head coach. I don't think that UGA's cupboard was considered as empty as South Carolina's, but but there they are, tied for fourth, In the weak SEC East, I never understood the assumption that Kirby Smart was an upgrade over Mark Richt anyway. Does UGA have a buyer's remorse right now?
1: Just going to point out, he wrote that email before this past weekend when Georgia beat Kentucky, thankfully for Kirby Smart. And I don't believe they're still tied for fourth. But uh, do they have buyer's remorse? No, I don't think so. But it just kind of affirms what I thought at the time. Not that they shouldn't have fired Mark Richt, because I do think, you know, the program had gone stale. But why was Kirby Smart the only guy even considered? There was no real coaching search. He was their guy from day one, despite having never been a head coach. And obviously, everybody loves the Nick Saban tree. And some of those guys have worked out great, like Jimbo Fisher, and some of them have not. So I don't think it was a guarantee that he would come back to his alma mater and have resounding success. But, uh, you know, you got to give guys a little bit of a great – like he said, you know, first-year head coach, learning on the job. Mark Richt had a pretty rough first year at Georgia, as I recall. And then the next year they won the SEC. So I think uh, it's a little too early to be talking report. Yeah, same here. I mean,
2: look, he's six, seven, six of the seven new starters in the defensive front, young quarterback, shaky offensive line. I mean, yes, the SEC East is awful this year. But, you know, it's tough. I mean, this guy, like Will Muschamp, was learning – in his first big job and it's a heavyweight job you know I think if this was year three at this point I would be more concerned but I think you got to give him
1: a chance you can't expect him to to hit the ground running and be a Nick Saban his first job as a head coach I think part of the problem is he's trying to be Nick Saban and it's such a huge culture change from a Mark Richt program to a Nick Saban program our last question for today I got to give credit to the name it comes from Jim Swarthout in Los Angeles do you get the reference, Bruce?
2: Uh, it's a Chevy Chase thing.
1: Jim Swarthout was uh, Alan Stanwick's realtor in Fletch. I remember it. Hey, Stu and Bruce, ignoring the silliness of AM's rank in the first CFP rankings, it appears as usual that the committee only rewards a strong non-conference schedule if you win the games. A school is better off scheduling two mediocre Power 5 programs, say Arizona and Minnesota, than in Alabama or Clemson or Wisconsin. Does anyone really believe that Washington would have been ranked 5th if they had lost to Alabama instead of beating Rutgers? Of course not. In other words, don't go full Baylor, but don't go USC either. I don't disagree with them. Yes, I think it is. I mean, I hate to say it, but you still have enough flexibility if you're in a pretty good
2: league. I mean, it still comes back to you have less margin for error, but I think the odds are in your favor. I'm not
1: a mathematician. Maybe I'll be proven wrong in some emailer, but do you agree? Well, I think that there's a big reward, obviously, for winning one of those games, but you look at Oklahoma right now, And they're really behind the eight ball, even though they're 6-0 in the Big 12. And if they had played one of the two, not both Houston and Ohio State, but one of the two, and then the other one they played Louisiana Lafayette and won, um, they'd be in a lot better shape right now. And is that fair? No. But, you know, that's kind of the risk-reward of this system, especially since you don't know far ahead of time. I mean, certainly when they scheduled that game, they would not have expected Houston to be on this uh, peak under Tom Herman. Look, Washington scheduled Rutgers in, in an FCS and a, and I forget who, Idaho. So you got to do better than that. But, you know, if you get too ambitious, yeah, it can really, uh, like USC this year, it can really set you back. But it's a risk reward system. And it's better than the polls where you would have no chance of recovering from that. I mean, as we see, the committee's pretty forgiving of a loss. The problem like Oklahoma is if you lose two, it's going to be hard to come back from that. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And uh, I'm going to miss you later in this week, Bruce. But there will be an Audible with a special guest to be named later. All right. See you guys next time.